and welcome to A Nightmare on Fear Street, a monstrous podcast about all things horror. If you like what you hear today, then you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can also rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Today, we're continuing our discussion on all of our favorite franchise, Scream with Scream 3. Today, we are joined by Haley Free. (laughs) (laughs) Haley, tell everybody about what makes you love horror movies. What are your favorite kinds? What's your genre? What you do? Oh, goodness. So uh, I always say that uh, I feel like being a horror movie junkie and a true crime junkie kind of run in my family. Um, My grandmother was into it. My mom's a scary movie fan. So my sister and I, uh, my uncle, so my cousin is as well. So we've all just we have all just loved that genre from a very young age, uh, probably too young, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Um, I, I don't have that memory of like my first scary movie. I just, I've never not known who Freddy Krueger was. Like, <laughs> um, and those are probably my favorite kind. I love slashers, especially like the classic slashers. So uh, Wes Craven is my absolute favorite. So A Nightmare on Elm Street and the Scream series are are my favorite of, of the horror genre, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, tell our audience where they can find you on the social media you'd like to be found on. Oh. So uh, on Instagram and Twitter, you can find me at Haley, H-A-L-I underscore free. Uh, And on, I am on Facebook, although I have no idea what that URL is anymore. (laughs) You just have to type my name in um, there as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's get into some general thoughts on screen three. This is the one I wish hadn't been made. That's my general thought. (laughs) I, I wish it had been made better. I think it needed to be there. It just needed to, I think they needed more time. I, I'm not sure. I mean, well, I guess they had like two years or something, right? What had happened was Kevin Williamson gave them notes because he was busy with Dawson's Creek and I know did you last summer. And the person they hired threw the notes out and said, I could do it. And then ended up writing while they were filming, which is part of the reason things are not well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't they they like hired Patrick Dempsey like the day before shooting was going to start so he had like a day to learn his lines and then they which rewrote is, him probably <laughs> which is why they don't land because like we've all seen McDreamy he, he can do what he can do this was not <laughs> him at his best and I was like you broke Patrick look <laughs> <laughs> um no I definitely agree with all of this um Oh, Aaron Kruger. Like, I I know that he was at a a disadvantage coming in, you know, Kevin had developed these characters himself, had worked on them for two films, and he was handed that. But you you take notes from the dude that created these characters, you know what I mean? Like, I I feel like there could have been some sticking to what Kevin had already established a little bit more. but I do know they also dealt with a lot of leaks that kind of started happening in Scream 2. And because the internet had blown up by Scream mm-hmm. 3, like it was a huge, huge, huge problem um, that they had that to, to contend with, which, okay. But, uh, and then the schedule conflicts, oh my gosh. Like they only had Nev Campbell for, what was it, 20 days? Yeah. Higher movie. So they just, they had some conflicts from the beginning that they had to work through and- I get that, but I still think things could have been done to make the movie stronger, for sure. <laughs> 20 days with an actress is a very long time to have this be the result. Ned Campbell can, can shit out a scene in like two seconds and it's magnificent. <laughs> so like, and she and it's not like she doesn't know who Sydney is. I mean. Exactly. <laughs> right? Films now, yes. <laughs> so I, I agree that a lot of the fault lies in, in the writing and yeah. yeah. Like Kruger went on to write Transformers, so rest our cases. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> All right, well, let's get down into our um, specific points. So we're going to start this with just a, a discussion because all three of us had notes about women in Hollywood, the treatment of women in Hollywood, the use of these the female characters in this movie, and their interaction with Hollywood uh, bigwigs. I, you know. I do think it's very interesting that we have this film that is in it in its like one of the big points about it is how evil and how like terrible uh, Milton is the producer um and then this 
film is being produced by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, yes, that is that art imitating life or life imitating art? I did say that Milton is the real villain of this franchise. Not Maureen, not Ghostface, Milton. Absolutely. No, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, even if you even if you go with the fact that Roman is kind of avenging the results of what happened, you know, he was a son that was forgotten because it was during this time, awful time period in his mother's life and things like that. Even if you branch it back, like that happened because of Milton. So absolutely like i don't even know how to start hacking at this problem of women and how they were misusing this movie so let's yes. take it back to the top um so roman's here to kill sydney because he is the product of maureen's assault from her time in hollywood so this this retcon makes it seem like she became the person she became and had all these affairs because of this moment in her life and the things that were done to her by men and that's gross and icky. Women can enjoy sex. We didn't need them to explain why she was enjoying sex with multiple people. We didn't yes. need them to explain it this way and that's something tragic that and that's what led her down here and where her own like psychopathic son refers to her as a slut. Like yep. this was not Kevin Williamson's work. I want to see the receipts. I want to see the notes he gave Kruger because if this is what he was doing, we need to talk to him as well. Um, yes. I would have rather they not just not don't explain the why and the how she was here for all this sex just leave it vague we didn't need this especially right. because this was not the way to do it right and right. there was also especially going to that point especially because up into this we have no information we have no character development no buildup for us to care about maureen she is just being used as a catalyst she is just being called a slut she is just like the only things we know about her are her reputation uh the fact that she had this son and abandoned him and these two horrible things that happened to her this rape at this producer party and her rape and murder like that's literally all we know about this character mm -hmm. uh, nothing to counterbalance that with any sort of sympathy or any sort of no this isn't why she was like this this is just a, this is a horrible thing that happened to her there's no build up to that. It's just that's all she is. It's the things that have happened to her. Right, and then there, and then there is that scene that always, and I, I kind of forget that it's that um, cringy, but when I think it's um, Gail and uh, Parker Posey's character, and a couple other like some of the dudes are in there too, but they're in Milton's office and they're and they are um, uh, telling him. Yeah, they're, they're telling him that they, that they know that he knew Maureen Prescott um, and or Rena Reynolds as she's known in Hollywood. Um, I have a funny story about that when I'm done with this point. But um, and then he's like, well, there's nothing nothing happened to her that she didn't want or, you know, and like this this whole toxic masculinity of women wanting to because like that has to live in a in a. Um, women can enjoy sex but women can also not want to have sex like yes <laughs> they can do yes both. yes right we have layers and i he basically goes down the abuser's handbook it was a different time which is something we hear quite often especially when you go to grad school at texas tech university um <laughs> he's a racist because he's from a different time well he's in the 2000s he needs to stop being racist okay um, um, and then of course he goes into that, well, she knew what it was going to be when she got there. And it's like, nobody walks into a room about to be jumped by multiple old guys. If that's not what they're into. Um, so yeah, like I, it was just like the abuser's handbook he gave us real quick. It was a different time, but then in the same like monologue at the end of it, he says in the present tense, Maybe this town isn't for the, uh, naive naivete or something something like oh no innocence, and I'm like yes. so it so the problem is still there. You're clearly saying it, <laughs> and it is because back to what they did to these women in this movie, almost all of them slept with either him or fucking Roman, and it's like none of them are here for their talent. They're all here because you slept with them, and it has to come out that they slept with you to be in this movie because you're mm -hmm. saying that nobody here has talent as far as women go. Right, and that was something that was so confusing about how they use this movie. Because if you look at one and two, 
there are themes about how real life relates to media. You know, you have um, in number one, the kind of statement that people become desensitized to the gore and things like that. And then in number two, you have the issue of art imitating or real life imitating this gruesome art. Um, so, and those were dealt with really well, I think. Uh, and this one, it sort of like tries to semi kind of come at this issue and it just fails miserably because you have Milton and you have him saying this is a certain time. And, but there are so many opportunities where they could have juxtaposed that with it not being, um, like you have Sarah Darling when she's on the phone call with Roman and saying like, you know, why is my character showering? Her boyfriend's just been cut into fish sticks. Like, why would I decide to shower right now? And like, why do I have to be naked in this scene? And why am I a blonde bimbo? Like, and you have the line, like Angelina saying, you know, I didn't have sex with that pig Milton to die here with second rate celebrities like you mm. to prove that it's happening in modern times. And you have Carrie Fisher's line where she said, and I was up for Leia, but who got the part? The one who slept with George Lucas. Mm -hmm. So you had these lines that bring it through all of the history of Hollywood, essentially going back years and years and showing that this is still happening, but they didn't connect them well. They didn't make a point with that. They didn't, they just let it fail miserably with the writing so that it doesn't carry through if they were actually trying to make a point about it. It's not carried, even though you see like bits and pieces of them trying. No, and it's what happens when you don't have women in those writers' rooms. <laughs> interesting point this is the first time we really get any kind of like nudity in these films when in the first in the opening scene when I'm from gossip girl yes i love her <laughs> um when she's getting out of the shower or when she's in the shower you i mean you can see her completely naked in that moment uh, yeah. and so that I was, in, that, in that moment i was kind of like oh, dang it because i we were so praising these films the first two and the fourth, because there's not a lot of, there's no nudity. Right. Those are the three Kevin were there for. Yes. As so that might answer a question of if it was Wes or Kevin or a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Well, point. and again, going back to like Sarah Darling's little monologue there, you have, that's one of those, again, one of the moments that fails because you have her talking about why am I naked? Why am I in the shower? 10, 15 minutes after you've just shown a woman completely naked in the shower in the opening of your movie. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The lampshades were thin in this one. The lampshades were so thin. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I kind of wanted to delve into is I think it's kind, I mean, you have some people who disagree, um, but, and I'm going to, preface this with I do love this movie I do love the Scream series like I said before it's one of my favorites um so I, I don't want to sound like I'm trashing it but I think everybody can kind of universally agree that this is the worst one um and kind of delve into some of the reasons why it just doesn't work I know we've talked a lot about address you know them semi sort of trying to address the issue of what happens to women in Hollywood and that culture and things like that um but there were a lot of things this is undoubtedly the most camp that we've seen in any of the screen movies. Um, and I think that totally takes us out of the scream realm. Um, because anytime that they have put any references or any sort of camp or anything like that, it's done really well and it's very slight and it's very, you know, it fits into the mold well. And that's not so with this one. Uh, you literally have Jay and Silent Bob walking around. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I hated that. I love him, but why is he in this movie? And um, one thing I actually didn't notice is how far they went with the 2000 pop culture references. And that really sticks this movie in that time frame. Uh, I know you guys talked about when you were discussing Scream 1, how there are things that kind of kind of dated a little bit. Um, but this one just goes overboard, like um, trying to be hip in the tech world and stuff like that was a very early 2000s thing and you have this like voice changer that clocks everybody's voice and he can speak like anybody he wants to uh, and you have this camera purse and things like that and I feel like those are so they stick it right there and don't let it age well um, and on top of that one thing I did not notice until watching it this time around was 
the names of some of these characters. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that before, but the actors that are in these movies um, or that are in step three, their names are Jennifer Jolie, Angelina Tyler, <laughs> Tom Prince, like <laughs> Tom Cruise and Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> and Tyson Fox, like, yes. Um, so <laughs> while that gave me a good chuckle, that I feel like that's for a horror movie parody and not an actual horror movie. And those are just things that keep it from, from being scary. They, they keep it in that campy world too much. And also as much as I do love Patrick Dempsey, him being in this movie again is a very 2000s thing. He is that archetype from that time period. He is, they stuck him in there because he is that McDreamy mold. This was a little bit before Grey's Anatomy, but they stuck him in there because he is that McDreamy mold that was the thing at the time. And there are just so many, and uh, I feel like every movie around that time had the half sibling thing. Now in this world, it did come as a surprise um, within this green world, but I feel like a ton of scary movies at the time, there was a secret half sibling or you had DID. And the, that was every horror movie of that generation. So in that, it kind of becomes everything that the first two screen movies were spoofing, that they were kind of going in the face of. And it, they kind of became that in Scream 3. Right. I didn't feel like Scream, I felt like Scream 3 wasn't in on the joke. Whereas Scream right. 2 and Scream 1 were in on the joke and were, and were right. clever and smart about when they were spoofing and who and what they were spoofing. Whereas right. this one, they were just like, let's throw some spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. Right. Yes. And it doesn't work. It, it, you know, the cute little like Wes Carpenter. Where did that go? Cause the first one they called him Wes Carpenter. So I thought we were gonna meet Wes Carpenter, especially because this actor, Lance Hendrickson, looks right. just enough like Wes Craven to make it funny. And they had a completely new name. And I was yep. like, you, it's, it's like Cooper never watched the first two movies. It's like yeah. he came in, I was like, I know what a slasher is and started throwing shit on paper. And now mm -hmm. we're going to suffer with this third I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he went, the, most of that went with Kevin Williamson. I honestly think that without Kevin, Scream 1, Scream 2, and Scream 4 would not be as good as what they are. You, they, they needed both Wes and they needed, and they needed Kevin, for sure. The thing about these movies is that they are dark comedy horrors. And if you don't have that same sense of humor, you don't get it. And right. also I'm just over people removing the, the creators from stuff, being like, we can do that when you can't, clearly. The creator has a very specific voice, a very specific style. They have these people in their heads. Right. And if you can't respect that and learn from them, if you're gonna assist with the writing, then don't touch the project. And again, that was right. one of those scheduling things. Like they basically had to choose between him and Nev Campbell. And it, he kind of stepped back and was like, okay, I know if you're choosing between me and Sydney Prescott, you've got to choose Sydney Prescott. But I kind of feel like if it came down to that, like you said, either get a writer that's going to respect what's already been done or wait until you can have them both. Yeah. Like, because we've waited so long, we would have gladly waited another year for them to both line up. Absolutely. Uh, another thing that um, I feel like really hinder this movie but this is also something that that we can actually talk about as far as this um there was a big censorship debate uh going on so that contributed to the rewrites for one and um because one of the original ideas was that uh Stu was actually had actually survived scream one and was orchestrating a group of high school kids who like had become billy and Stu stands uh and he was kind of orchestrating them in attacks on sydney and then breaks out at the end for the final like confrontation um but because columbine had just happened right before this movie they decided that maybe portraying a group of murderous high schoolers was not the best option which i totally understand um and they actually uh tried to force them to not use any blood, any gore, anything like that in this entire movie. Uh, and Wes had to fight them and be like, look, we're either going to make a screen movie or we're going to make a different movie. But if we're making a screen movie, there are certain expectations. And I'm sorry about that, but it is a horror film. 
so no we can't do this completely with no violence on screen I'm sorry like it's still a scary movie um so they did give a little bit but one of the facts that I found that was super interesting was in screen one they used 50 gallons of fake blood screen two was 30 and it went all the way down to just 10 in this movie um and a commentary that I kept hearing over and over and over was how lackluster the, uh, the kills were, which I know seems like a really weird thing to comment on. But if you are a horror movie fan, again, like Wes said, there are certain expectations. And yeah, this movie was a bit lackluster in that department. But what do you guys think of that? Like censoring, because again, Scream 2 deals with violence in the media and its effect and how people react to it or try to imitate it and that sort of thing. So I completely get the studio wanting to throw that idea out there. But what do you guys think about that? Do you agree with West? I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely against censorship. I mean, to censor art is to take any power away from it. But I would also say this was the time, if you look, think back culturally, mm-hmm. a lot of conservative organizations were trying to blame uh, the arts on aggression in schools or in, in just in general you know oh it was they were listening to Ozzy Osbourne or oh they were watching horror films or oh they played Mortal Kombat or or you know stuff like that as opposed to maybe looking inside the household and saying why, why are we raising toxic children um want to kill people <laughs> <laughs> yes no it was an easy pivot for them to be like it's Buffy as opposed to it's the fact that we have guns so easily accessible the fact that guns are still easily accessible after all that we have been through just in our lifetimes. Like, think of all of the literal mass shootings that happen every year, aside from this year, because the pandemic put most of us at home. So it's been right. less this year. <laughs> but it's like a literal pandemic for people to be like, am I no longer afraid to go to the grocery store or the movie theater? Right. And that's America's problem. Um, yeah. We never want to talk about the real problem. We want to dance around and skirt around and point fingers at people who aren't having any sort of part of it. Mm-hmm. Pulling Buffy or pulling the blood from this, don't do shit. Doesn't pulling do guns, that's how you save some people. Yeah, <laughs> I would say there's it's a, it's a twofold problem. You're right, Sheree, that guns, yes, that like pulling the guns is, I mean, helpful for sure. Um, also destigmatizing um, mental illness. And also toxic masculinity, again, which is another reason why conservatives were like, it's not the guns, it's the art. Because how dare you tell Stu, who just stabbed half of his classmates, perhaps it's because he was beat as a child and his father's a piece of shit. That can't be it. It has to be the movies. Uh, It can't be anything that happened when he was being raised or in this nuclear family unit. That can't be it. Even though time and time again, like the FBI's, the FBI <laughs> list of traits to look for in serial killers is everything you see on Bumble or Match.com. Let us all just take a moment to look at that. Yes. <laughs> That's and terrible. That. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not the Randys we got to work out. Oh, watch out for. It's the Billies. <laughs> it's the Romans. It's the Mickeys. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And it's exactly like you said. And both of those, both of those characters that you mentioned have underlying things that were not dealt with either because they chose to they chose to blame somebody else and also probably because I mean we don't see it but they were probably told to like oh man up like it's yes you know it's it's something that you got to deal with so what your mom like well that's a big thing both Billy and Roman are blaming women for their shit and when Sid calls them out for their bullshit they lose it like when she's like, it's not Maureen's fault you're a killer. You kill people because you want to. Roman loses his shit. He is hardly able to verbalize the rage because how dare you tell him it's him and toxic masculinity and it's not his mother. <laughs> we never met it's, it's mother. No, it's not, and like, why does Billy, yes, I understand like his mom left and that is a, a thing that, you know, should be addressed and, and that sort of thing. But like, he never blames his father for cheating it's yeah. Maureen's fault for you know cheating with him and it's his mother's fault for leaving but none of it has to do with his father actually being the one who went outside of marriage it goes back to the abuser handbook where it's never the abuser's fault ever and, and, no. always, and always remember boys will be boys you know okay. yes boys will be boys yes yeah no boys will be boys they're just that way they can't be emotional 
And that's why they stab people. And that's fine. Because they have sex with everything, and that's fine. Yeah, they can sleep around, but Marie's a slut. Yeah. And it's like, but like your father was knocking on her hotel room door. Um, Can he not be a slut as well? What's his backstory? Why he enjoys sex so much? Where's that at, Mr. Kruger? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so censorship is not the answer ever. Um, I hate these people that like are so concerned about their children seeing queer characters on children's shows or like mm-hmm. heaven forbid they have to look at the world that's actually out there <laughs> right remember remember the walking dead's first like actual same-sex couple who kissed and the people lost their shit they were like my children watch this show and i'm about like zombies <laughs> It's about zombies and people getting shot in the head and you're upset that your children might see people kiss. Right. Because like, you're a homophobe and that blows your world up. Like, spoiler alert, but you have, like, yeah. people get their heads bashed in and their eyes literally popping out of their skull and you're okay with them watching that, but yeah. goodness forbid. Yes. What is this romantic relationship? What is this happiness? They can't see that. This is America. <laughs> 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 And I just, I, I leave my body every time America, America's itself so hard that I have nothing else to say to it. True. <laughs> yes. So I, I figured that's what you guys would have to say about it, but I wanted to bring up that issue because it was something that I thought was very interesting in how it did affect this this movie um, and the original trajectory. Because like I said, that was um, one of the plot points that they were considering, but it was that censorship and it was what was going on at the time that um, limited that when actually, if you think about it, they could have used that uh, to address what we were just talking about, to address like why their children would follow someone like Stu, to address why they would be seeking outlets for this type of aggression and why they would go after someone they don't even know because this guy told them to like, you know, instead of showing that and addressing what was going on with these kids to make them want to follow Stu in the first place and what was going on with Stu to be that violent and lead these kids into that. Instead, we shied away from it because of what was going on. To sort of tag on to your point about some of the stuff that was cut or rewritten at the last minute. So when Angelina is murdered, we see the body be dragged away or drug away, which doesn't happen. Ghostface kills people and leaves them. AKA the black person, the only black person's movie who dies and is laid out there forever for the rest of the movie face down. Um, so we know Ghostface leaves a body, right? So when Ghostface drags Angelina's body away, I clocked it as she's in on this. And if you listen to the DVD commentary, there was a version or versions where Angelina was one of the murderers. And that would have made her character make so much more sense because everything she does is so suspect. Like, the bathroom stall where she meets Sydney and she's climbing up on the toilet for what? Who climbs up on a toilet in a public space? <laughs> she was throwing yeah. a mask. Um, it also, it doesn't work that Roman does this alone because some of the shit that happens, you need at least two people for. And so either Roman has like nine clones and Sydney killed all of them, which killed the one, or something else has happened here. And yeah. so, I feel like that was a time they could have given a woman agency because I don't like the way any of the women are handled in this one, including Sydney and Gail. And so yep. that would have given somebody something cool to do other than to be the meek and mild. I don't know. I'm so weird and afraid. I fucked him and I'm not going to die here with you two. That's not a real character arc. That's not a real character shift. Yeah. <laughs> These the- women were wasted. Yeah. All of the women characters were wasted. And including our Black friend who I knew was going to be murdered. He was the only Black person. We went from four black people in screen two to one and then killed him. Uh, and That's I not progress. It was hilarious. He was so, they they could have utilized him so, so much better. But speaking to possibly using Angelina, that is another point where they could have driven that home that this is, you know, this toxic environment in Hollywood is still there and still affecting people. That could have been part of her motive. Yes. You know what I mean? Like having to be a part of that and have sex with Milton to break into this world and not being able to be there on her talents 
could have connected her and Roman and been like, okay, he did this to your mom and therefore you, and now he's doing this to me. This toxic thing is still going on. It, it's another missed opportunity to tie those two together and make that problem and show that it is still going on today right. and tie that all together. But again, they didn't do that. <laughs> missed opportunities. <laughs> Very much a missed opportunity. Yeah, uh, I I do want to. So I want to bring up something that I actually liked about the movie because you know, really <laughs> crap on everything. Parker Posey and Courtney Cox are the only saving graces of this film. They are so funny together to me. I laugh. The banter is the only actual like funny part. I don't know. Parker Posey just gets me in general and everything she's ever done. I've never seen her not be funny to me. Um, she may not be everyone's cup of tea, but. I, I really. I love that woman so much. <laughs> Aside from this movie, I like her. I wonder. She just never felt grounded. She felt like she was a caricature of someone. Oh, for sure. And I didn't know the person, and so she was just doing random shit. And like the acting in this movie is terrible. <laughs> um, David a cat is throwing more lines on the floor faster than you can say why, David. Um, and most of her scenes were with him so I don't know if she gave up because he was that way or what but like all of her line readings I cringe um, and I never did that before I've, I've never been like how dare Parker Posey do this movie but this one I was like maybe she needs a script where she sets foot on set from here on out and that's fine that's fair <laughs> I don't know I enjoyed it I thought that they had some good bantering energy I liked it I'm one of the few on this one, and I own that. But like, it, it, I, oh. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do agree. Her scenes with David were rough. Only her scenes with Courtney were the ones that I enjoyed. Yes, and Angel <laughs> does this throughout, so it's not just in this movie. The only thing that I didn't like about that is if it had just been that, it would have been hilarious. Like I said, their banter, like you said, is part of the best. You know the the best kind of comedic relief that you want in a horror movie. The, they gave that to us. But the only thing I didn't like in this world that they created, I feel like it just added to that, oh, women are catty. Oh, women are, you know what I mean? Women are vicious to each other. Women are going to have cat fights in Hollywood. And that was the only thing. If it had been outside of that world, absolutely. Um, and I agree that they were hilarious. The only thing I didn't like is that it was inside this place that we've created. I get that. And most of their friction was over Dewey, which does not pass the Bechdel yeah. test. Yeah. Also, it's Dewey. If you're going to fight over a man, Dewey, <laughs> really? Really? Touche. Touche. I just thought it was funny. Anyway. No, no, I totally agree that they are the best kind of comedic relief. It tries to do some fun, campy stuff that doesn't work, but theirs does work as the comedic relief. They're, well, they're banter for it. I do need to bring in my real world joke to this though, because like I forgot. So during this last election, every time I would talk about the libertarian candidate, I would call her Judy Jergenstern. And I forgot where I got that name from until I watched this movie. And I was like, this is it. <laughs> that was my favorite scene. And it leads me to my favorite part of the whole movie, which is Carrie Fisher. That, those two minutes of Carrie Fisher's time is the only reason I would revisit this movie again. Um, <laughs> and I always forget that until she shows up. I'm like, that's why I don't hate it completely. Because Carrie Fisher showed up and gave us so many references and so much attitude and so much Carrie Fisher to love. And made that scene with Parker, that's probably my favorite scene with Parker Posey in this because she got to be quieter and less at a 20. <laughs> <laughs> And so it was the one time I didn't go, stop talking, Parker. Stop. <laughs> so, Judy fun fact. Uh, so fun fact, did you guys know that that cameo actually almost went to Jamie Lee Curtis? They actually asked her to make that cameo and she was trying to get out of like the horror genre and decline. Um, so they brought in Carrie Fisher and I'm so glad that they did. As much as I love the, the back and forth that... Um, Halloween and Scream have, which also, I did not think about this until this time around, just a little side note that Sydney's uh, fake name for her job is Laura. <laughs> and um, the house that they are in was actually used in Halloween H2O as part of the school. Oh, that's not familiar. 
but they did try to further that that little back and forth by having Jamie Lee Curtis do the, the cameo but I'm so glad that it ended up being Carrie Fisher <laughs> it just it makes it better especially because like Rena Reynolds her last name Reynolds like Debbie Reynolds like her mom maybe and also <laughs> think about that yeah, no, and also Rena Reynolds went blonde at this time, had like curly hair. And I was like, was she also a dancer slash singer slash triple threat? <laughs> and so like, it just, I don't know if that was intentional, if it was accidental because things were being rewritten every other second, but right. like that was an accidental moment of bliss. And yes. those are two minutes I would say from this burning building that is this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about Maureen and everything, and we actually brought this up a little bit earlier um the way that this movie and the screen movies in general let's just talk about how they deal with sydney's mental health um so i feel like the first two did a very good job with like the ebb and flow of um fighter versus survivor you know what i mean like in the first one uh and you guys covered this when you when you did the uh, the episode about scream one that she is a, a survivor. She's doing what she can to live through the situation. Um, and towards the end of that and into screen two, we see more of Sydney, the fighter. And in this one, we, I feel like they kind of dipped their toes into her dealing with her PTSD. Like she separates herself from her support system. And I know that part of her feels like, you know, she's being safer that way. Um, but she separates herself from her support system and she does actually start having, especially after Cotton is murdered, these thoughts about her mom and like what would have happened if her mom hadn't slept with Billy's dad. Like, you know, there are all these what ifs going through her mind and then she kind of feels guilty about thinking this about her mom and then like, is she going to be like her mom and things like that. And you have this nightmare scene where she sees her mom and her mom is like, oh, you're just like me, everything you touch is put you know you poison everything you touch um and roman is also able to hone in that on that and use it uh with with the phone call and using maureen's voice and with the set scene where he chases her into a replica of her house and uses these voiceovers of her mother and you know the image of her mother in this bloody body bag and things like that and i really feel again it's one of those kind of undercooked things I would like to see them deal more with that. I would like to see Sydney actually go through the struggle of going from survivor to fighter to survivor to fighter, because I feel like that's what happens. She is a survivor who has to learn to be a fighter. And then she's like, okay, I've mustered all my strength. I've used up all my strength. I'm going to go and separate myself now because I have to, to coming back and ending up fighting her brother. I feel like they went kind of from, to me, it seemed almost the lowest we've seen her to super Sid at the at the end when she's fighting Roman with without enough of an arc. Yeah. So I feel like they could have dealt with that a little bit more. And that that kind of is is one of my notes as well. Like I felt like the most effective scenes in the movie as a horror movie, not necessarily the funniest scenes, um, are the scene with her mother, the dream sequence with her mother in the window and when she is on the set of Stab Three and see and it's the town. I honestly kind of wish we could have ended the movie. The third act could have taken place on set. Yes. That would have been a really fun choice. But yeah, having her and then seeing her look, see the scene where they replicated her mother's death scene, uh, that was difficult. And I think, yeah, yeah I, I wish they would have done more with that too. Yeah, because they don't really, and actually we could even go into Dewey with this. Um, they don't let these characters fully address what's lost. They're too busy dealing with the next killer to process what just happened. You know what I mean? Like, again, Sydney's lost her mother and then we only have a year before all of her friends were killed and she's still dealing with losing her mom and what people seemingly think about her mother and doesn't get to process that before another stream of murders happen. Okay, that's maybe in the past, she goes to college and it happens again. And in this, we again, dip our toes in it with the Derek thing, um, because we see her hesitate in trusting him and then she hey. ends up dying because she doesn't trust him. And again, that's another thing that we don't ever deal with. And 
Dewey lost his baby sister. Like he lost his kid sister and that is never mentioned. Like he never mentions Tatum again in two, three or four. So I, I feel like it would be interesting to see these characters deal with what has happened to them rather than having to go straight into fighting somebody else. <laughs> Especially because all of this has happened within a four year time span because Roman lets us know we're not playing with time the way these movies fail or the way these movies fail and this is a four year time frame. Yep. So literally it's like you said, um, 2005, yes, 2005, mom dies. 2006, friends die. 2007, we go to college. That don't work because people die. Um, yep. <laughs> 2009, we apparently dropped out of college because that wasn't working out. Um, right. still has the boyfriend's necklace and still puts on outfits remarkably close to what you wore to your final showdown uh-huh. in your last moments with your yep. last killers. Uh-huh. Um, also, I just want to circle back because like she's packing mace and it's like you've had to kill how many people now, Sydney? Do you think mace is strong enough? <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm curious, I'm curious what you all think, because I have another note too, that like her being a trauma hotline worker is, and it makes more sense than her being a theater major. Yeah. Uh, I think what I enjoyed about her being a theater major was I was like, I'm a, I like theater too. She's <laughs> <laughs> like it, me. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't work. Like we talked about it last week because you don't, you don't go, I don't want to be spotlight because I'm in my trauma and people going to kill me if I'm going to be active. And so that never felt genuine. That felt forced as fuck. I let yeah. it go because we've got bigger problems on the horizon, AKA this installment. And so, like, I was like, Kevin, what are you doing, Kevin? Um, and so I'm happy that she found something that wasn't like, look at me, give me spotlight, give me attention, put my name up. Because nobody wants that when they're trying to recuperate from trauma. <laughs> no yeah. one's out here trying to get attention with their trauma. And that's not the city I know. It's not the city they gave us. So it's a weird choice. But it, it, yeah. it, it, it's also, I, would would she want to help other women through their trauma? I, I personally feel like that's a very Sydney thing. I, yeah. I do. And I, I going back to dealing with her own, I think that that's an easy way for her to deflect mm-hmm. because a very basic Sydney thing is, I'm fine. You yeah. know, yes, I'm fine is stretched tightly across your face. Um, yeah. But- like, and so I, I think it definitely makes sense that she would want to deflect from herself and help others deal with their trauma instead of focusing on herself and dealing with that herself, even though she is isolated, even though she, you know, presumably would have the time and the distance to do that, she is choosing to help take care of other women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it, it tracks because think about how many people go into social work because a social worker or someone else on that vein helped them out when they were children or helped their parents out when they were children. And so it just, it tracks to want to help people in a similar situation through something that few people understand. Yep. Um, yeah. That's why some of us go back into academia. I'm not naming names. Um, <laughs> so I just want to bring attention to the fact that the characters again were awful this installment. Like Dewey was specifically dumber than usual. Dewey has a genuine naivety, usually. This one, it was just like, do you have her number in your memory? He looks up into the ceiling. No, your phone, Dewey. I'm like, what is this, Blue's Clues? Like, who is writing this? (laughs) And like, when, um, oh my God, when fake Gail's beating on the mirrors in the bedroom, and Dewey shoots every window but the one she's at. And I'm like, Dewey, start closer at least, Dewey. And when he's shooting Roman multiple times, and Roman keeps running at him, and they're like, in the head, Dewey, in the head. He's like, what? And like, is this your, this is not the first time you've all been almost murdered together. I, I need you to make better choices. Yes, <laughs> yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I lovingly call this the, the Eric Matthews effect because they did the same thing. Yeah. Yes, and they did with Joey on Friends. They did. They do it with all these characters. They they figure out that the audience finds it endearing that they're a little bit, you know, bumbling, and then they're like, "Oh, okay, so we're gonna go from making them not the sharpest tack to a complete blubbering idiot." And I hate it. I hate it so much. I completely wholeheartedly agree. Like it is disheartening when when writers do that, and they did that with Dewey. They. It was so overdone in this movie. Like they, uh, 
and in like in their attempt at making Dewey like the the emo Dewey when he's talking to Gail, he's so mad at her. I was like, <laughs> number one, David Arquette can't play this. <laughs> All of his lines in this movie hurt me. He he whispers them sometimes like. I, he's not important. He clearly should have stayed dead. In one of the, he was supposed to die in the first one. He was supposed to die in the second one. And one of those should have stuck because he was not needed for this one. I feel like he was trying to do the Luke Wilson from Scream, from Stab and Scream 2. Yes. 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 It, it just didn't, it made no sense. His whispering at Sydney, which is the police station, where it was like, are you reading these lines for the first time, David? Did you? That <laughs> might be true. That might be true. <laughs> We don't know. I will give him that. I will give him that because it was not a tight ship. But you know what? At the end of the day, you got to act it. You can't just be like, Sydney, why are you here? I told you not to come. It sounded like I was listening to the first Resident Evil game on PlayStation where the acting was like comically bad and we all like laughed and still played the game. But that was David Arquette for two hours. Yeah. I think my biggest problem with most of the acting is that none of them, even Sydney, even Nev, who I usually love, the the stakes weren't high enough. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like Scream Two, and even in Scream Four, when shit starts going down, Sydney and Gail are like, "Look, I know what the fuck I'm doing. I've been through this a couple times." Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, and again, we have women having to stick up for themselves in that. But um, yeah, no, I totally agree in that scene. Like, this is someone who, like, do we? if you think about it, does go through a lot in this movie. Like, um, again, you know, you have him dealing with Gail leaving for her career. Like she stayed until he got better and then she peaced out and he's confronting her for the first time since then. Then you have this girl coming out of hiding where she would have hopefully been safe or at least safer. Um, And she's like your little sister and you're seeing her pop out of hiding and coming into a situation that could get her killed. You're right, you're not gonna be like, why are you here? You're going to be freaking out. And like, why in the world did you come out of hiding? Why are you here for this? You're going to get hurt. And it's like you said, the writing did not make the stakes high enough in either one of those situations. Mm-hmm. They just... Yeah, the writing did not give any of them any help, for sure. No. They were not supposed I, to be the writers, for sure. But their the performances weren't their best either. They weren't up to no. par either. And I, one thing that I did read, and I don't know if this is what they were going with with acting style as far as their choices and direction and things like that. One of the commentary that I was listening to made the point that they were trying to go into that Hollywood culture and everybody's kind of one dimensional and fake and things like that. And so they were kind of writing the characters that way, especially the actors that were supposed to be in step three. But even if that were so, you wouldn't write Gail and Dewey that way. If anything, you would want them to be the juxtaposition to that. And I think that they fell into that trap. And whether that was a style that was directed to them or just they were feeling coming off of the script and made those choices, I'm not sure. But yeah, it doesn't work. And and like, yeah, I totally get making the cannon fodder, you know, people to kill one dimensional. And okay, that's fine. But don't make your three core characters that have we have now you've had audiences love and cherish for three films or two films. Mm-hmm. Um, don't make them one dimensional because then their your audience is not going to go with you. Especially mm-hmm. since you're using Gail and Dewey more in this movie, even more so than you have in the first two, because Sydney is separate and in hiding, and they're the ones that are dealing with the beginning of this new killing spree. Like, yeah, they can't be one dimensional or the audience is not with them. So um, one thing, this is actually a shout out to my friend Cece. (laughs) We were uh, having a discussion about this movie and she brought up a theme that is kind of prevalent through, through all of these films, which is paying for other people's sins, particularly children paying for their parents' sins. Uh, And that is the most evident in this one. Again, they kind of loosely played with it, but that goes back to kind of tracking with Sydney's mental health as well and her relationship with Maureen that we don't get any grasp on. We don't even know, honestly, what her relationship with Maureen was like because they never tell us. It's always post-murder that we're dealing with. It's never, you know, were they close? You see one picture of them with their arms around each other that I guess is supposed to kind of imply that they were. Um, But it's just that theme of, dealing with your parents and she's having to pay for 
her mother abandoning Rome and she has to pay for her mother's infidelity. She, you know, um, and the, the aftermath of that, even though we don't want to blame Maureen for, you know what I mean? Like she can be a woman who likes sex. And we've talked about that, but all the repercussions of deciding to go outside of marriage for that and all of that fall on Sydney. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the tone. That's the tone of all three of these films. Um, the fourth yeah. one, not so much, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. Uh, the all three of these films are definitely Sydney paying for her mother's choices. Yeah. Um, whether or not you call them a mistake or not, whether or right. not she enjoyed them, she is still paying the price, the consequences. Because you know, every yeah. every choice you make has consequences, whether they're good or bad. And instead of you know, well, I mean, I guess her mom had repercussions too because she's dead. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She paid the ultimate price. Um, she did. She did. Yes. Yeah. But, <laughs> We don't get to like like we've talked about they don't build up that character development or that relationship with Maureen so we we're seeing Sydney go through this and we're feeling more for Sydney because we're, we're watching her deal with it uh and I mean Billy too you know his his parents made the choices that they made his dad also decided to go outside of their marriage and the mom decided to leave um and he did not deal with those choices correctly, <laughs> clearly, but he's having to to pay for that aftermath. You know, he lost his mom because of those choices and she was not in his life anymore. And his relationship with his dad is clearly strained um, in what we do get to see in those movies. Um, and you brought up an interesting point, Shred, the uh, what's going on with Stu, you know, to kind of make him, what's go his home life like? I mean, clearly his parents aren't around very much. He's having this huge party mm -hmm. at his house and it doesn't seem like that's an uncommon occurrence. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is his home life like? Like, it, it definitely struck me that this is, like part of the reason I've always loved Wes Craven's work is that like he takes, especially the suburbs and he makes it a scary place. Yes. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream specifically, but also Cursed. And so to see all these kids who are your typical like 90s candy, you know, they have like these lush lives and these like friends who are straight out of the Teen Vogue magazine and everybody right. has money dripping out their ass. Like <laughs> the houses they ran around in in that first movie are ridiculous. And this college that they're going to is ridiculous. Yes. And so clearly whatever the parents are doing in these weird like Californian suburbs are making lots of money. And yes. so they don't really have problems. They aren't really oppressed because like they are rich white kids. And mm -hmm. so to see them get into their family shit and be like, well, now I'm upset, but I don't know how to feel upset. So I'm going to kill my friends, Billy Stu. Um, <laughs> um, and so it's just like, it, it's sort of a catalyst for like, it, it's kind of influenza at its finest is what it is. Um, it's all of that stuff that comes with that whole lifestyle of being like, well, toxic masculinity is in the water. Um, mm -hmm. Privilege is just in the air. And my home life is now not as picturesque. So I have to blame someone and it's going to be used. And so that's what I, that's what I'm sort of like, the one thing I like about Roman's character is that it brings it back to that. Because Roman's here directing in Hollywood. So clearly his life worked out for him. Right. Yet, <laughs> it's not the way he wants it because his mommy gave him up. And even though he knows why the mommy gave him up, it's his mommy's fault, it's his sister's fault, and he's going to kill them both. Um, yep. And it's Sid's fault that Sid got the life he wanted. Not his or his mother's or the guy he's about to kill for setting up the like party on his mother. None of that. No, no, no. <laughs> it's somebody else. Instead of him going, happiness is an inside job. What am I doing to where I have the life I want, but I'm still stuck on this shit and I need to kill people about it? How about I try therapy? How about I try meditation? How about I try hugging my inner Moppet? That doesn't occur to him. Oh, none of those occur. His first thing is to go to stabbing people and then getting upset when you call him out for stabbing people. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, it's interesting that you brought a nightmare into this as well because again it's a prevalent theme through that too like it was the parents who torched him but it's the kids yeah. that he goes after yeah no it's that inherited <laughs> familial trauma um it just happens to manifest differently in what's craven's world but i'm here for it oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely 
I just have a quick, my, my last one's really quick. It's this ending of this film, which I hate. Number one, Sydney would never leave the damn door open, ever. She lives out in the middle of nowhere. There are bugs, there are animals, there could be a raccoon that gets in her house. No, shut the damn door. Um, the, the, the whole styling of Courtney Cox in this last scene, number one, the bangs, we haven't talked about them, but they're there. But like, did, did they dress her to look like a two, like a two-year-old? She has barrettes in her hair. <laughs> I think they were trying to make her look younger, but it just made her look older. Yeah. And that's how you address that age gap. It's like putting barrettes in her hair and giving her those awful Josh Hardnett H2O bangs. Right. I'm sorry. No 20, uh, late 20, early 30s person can put barrettes in their hair. Okay. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. Not with them nasty ass bangs. I don't know what hair and makeup Courtney Cox pissed off, but she needs to go apologize now. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that no one said anything tells me that nobody was running the ship. They were just like, shit's happening. Let's do it. Because her bangs, her half inch bangs, I <laughs> I don't understand. I, I don't. And that wasn't like a thing in the 2000s. No. It wasn't like a style. I have never seen a lead look so rough from the beginning of the horror movie. Usually they have to like earn that by being chased and right. almost stabbed and shot. She starts <laughs> off looking like she's already survived a horror movie and we don't know why. It chops yeah. her bangs off. And I was like, okay, and, and in Scream 1 and in Scream 2, she is very much in the style of that time. Like yeah. in Scream, that is a nine mid nineties, big old hair, high, higher the hair, high, closer to Jesus. Look with her neon green, jumpsuit like that is that is that time period in two thin in scream two that's a late 90s look with them chunky red highlights and, and all black <laughs> like that is that time period now this were they drunk right? <laughs> it's just terrible it's terrible it's so bad it's so bad uh, everyone's costumes. Angelina's uh, florally potato sack. Uh, While wearing the killer boots, I didn't understand that. We left that in the early 90s for a reason. Yeah. Right. Even Willow Rosenberg couldn't pull that off at this point in time in the early aughts. So right. why did she think she could while climbing <laughs> onto a toilet? Yes. Yes. I just, none of the costumes worked, none of the hair and makeup worked. It just was all atrocious. And again, <laughs> Close your damn door, Sydney. Yes. Oh, and why is Patrick Dempsey here? They don't know, you don't know him. Except, yes, that was, uh, that, that, re that whole relationship is forced, confusing to me. Like, are they supposed to be building this, like, it's supposed to be romantic. Rapport? Is he supposed to be like another friend or like surrogate big brother type? Like, it's so forced. They kept kind of, so like, First off, Sydney rides in wearing the last dead boyfriend's necklace from college. Because this is still within two years. And she's still like locked up in a house with her own PTSD. So the fact that her and McDreamy are down here locking eyes, talking about whose life is worse, it feels weird and forced. Yeah. This was definitely them just being like, we got to put together one guy and one girl because like, we got to keep it hetero. Um, who's alive at the end? Those two. Which, I have a friend yeah. that has a theory that Sydney is a lesbian, which I am kind of here for. I could see it. The men in her life keep turning on her. So, like, <laughs> for sure. She's picking the wrong ones. Maybe it's a sign that a call is coming from inside. What? <laughs> yes. Get out now, girl. Get out now. Right? No, like, Billy turned all their entire class into fish sticks. Um, <laughs> Derek's friend Nikki and Billy's mother came back to like <laughs> murder all her new friends and the ones who lived from the last time. And in this one, she finds out she has a brother who wants to kill her and she finds out he wants to kill her and then finds out he's her brother in that order. I would also be done with the men. And I would not be surprised if Scream 5 was her father finally being like, I've been waiting for my turn. Thank you. <laughs> that would be insane. Really? insanity this little like because he's got to be like in his 50s or 60s now this old man like running around yeah <laughs> he's been staying in shape though he's one of those like agile older men he was like any year it's gonna be my turn to kill her any year <laughs> all right uh well let's get into some hot takes oh. so what's our hot takes for scream three <laughs> well 
will say Scream 3 still found ways to hurt me in regards to representation, which I didn't know could still happen because I've been tracking it as I do. In episode one, we have the two, maybe two and a half people of color who have no lines within these classrooms. And then in the second one, we have four whole black people, three of which are dead, <laughs> one of which is a cameraman. And so you would think in Scream 3, they would be like, can we fix this? Can we, can we do better? And they're like, ha we'll hire one black person and we'll kill him. And also we'll leave his body out there face down for half the fucking movie. Cause representation means screen time. <laughs> and I I am insulted and I am pissed off and I hate this movie. This is my life I'm watching it. That's my thought. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, this movie had too many scary movie vibes and not enough screen vibes. It felt like a spoof. It felt like, um, and I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of the scary movie franchise. Spoiler alert! Um, and so that's probably why I don't really like this movie as as much as the first, as the other three in this franchise. Um, on uh, Letterboxd, our friend Charlie, who was on Scream, the first Scream episode for, with us, uh, I looked at his review of Scream Three, and he's literally just said, "It's uh, just watch it to be prepared for Scream 4. <laughs> That's the only reason you should watch this movie, really. Like, and yes. I just, because they missed the whole point of the Scream franchise. Um, and yeah, so it, had, it needed less spoof, more Scream. Again, don't fuck with the original. If you have an original creator who's still alive, let them work it or leave it alone. Um, these are bad examples because some of the people are problematic now, but like Amy Sherman Palladino, they removed her from Gilmore Girls season seven and it shows. Um, Dan Harmon removed from the gas season of Community and it shows. Uh, you, when you hire a creator to create you a world, you have to honor that world and that creator. Otherwise you get this shit show. Yes. Yeah. All right, Haley. Um, okay, so we I kind of touched a little bit on the, my hot take earlier, but my hot take is just if you're going to touch on what happened to Maureen, I want to know more about her to kind of juxtapose what everybody's saying about her. You know, if you're going to have men calling her a slut, if you're going to have men saying she was asking for it, if you're going to have this entire town talk about her reputation then I want to know more about her and to, to balance that, to make me feel more sympathetic with her, to know more about her character. You know, I, I, I want that, that balance, that juxtaposition. So I think that they should, if they were going to use the character of Maureen this way, like don't make her a catalyst anymore, make her a person, make her a character. Give Sydney some flashbacks of her memories. With her. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. better positive so that we see yes. more than just she was a slut, she likes sex. Right, and more than you poison everything. So like, let's have happy moments of them together. Like, what's the story behind that picture that we see in every single movie of her and her mom together? Like, were they close? What was that like? Like, did did all this coming out like ruin that relationship with her mom? Like, give us more of that. It felt like they tried to force all of the three stereotypes on women onto Maureen in this movie. And she was never fleshed out. And that's why all of this keeps coming up. Because like we all know, women can only be the virgin, the mother, or the whore. And so instead of them going, how about we avoid all three of those? They were like, well, we put all three of them on Maureen and we'll do it all in this one movie. But also we will never actually have her inhabit any of these. We'll just talk about them and allude to them. And we'll do it through our own toxic masculinity lens. And so like, th this doesn't have to be this way. This woman could have just enjoyed sex. That could have been it, point blank. If this is what you're gonna give her for a backstory, don't give her the backstory. Cause she was a better character and more interesting, which is a woman that was getting around town, living her best life. Yeah. That's a Maureen I can stand. This one, I just like, oh, so you put this in her past because men have to always find a way to fuck it up, okay. All right. Well, Sheree, what do we got going on next week? Next week? Surprise! We're going to do Scream 4. What? Who saw that coming? Oh, my God! Mind <laughs> Plot blown. twist! Plot twist! What next? Roman coming back? Stu coming back? We don't know. Um, we do know our guest for Scream 4 will be Miss Eleanor Awicki. 
Um, so that's gonna be fun times. Eleanor saw the first two and has to watch the third one before going into the fourth one. <laughs> <laughs> just a reminder of Charlie's words. Just watch right? <laughs> It's a it's a it's a uh, diving board. You have to like get on it to get into the fort. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Again, make sure you're following us on social media: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and you can email us at nightmareonfearstreet at gmail.com. Make sure you rate and review us on um, Apple Podcasts. That just helps more people find us and uh, can listen to the fierceness um thank you Haley, for joining us thank you guys for having me of course it was a blast and thank you all for listening make sure you stay fierce out there bye